Hello and welcome to How To Money, a financial education podcast for young Australians aimed at opening up the conversation around money. In each episode, your host, Kate Campbell, brings in a variety of guests to explore everything from buying shares to starting your own business, all with the aim of kickstarting your personal finance journey. Just a quick reminder that everything we cover in this podcast is for financial education purposes only, and we are not giving you any advice. If you do want advice, please seek the help of a qualified and competent professional and do some research. Remember, it's your money, so take control. Hi, Nick. Welcome to the House Your Money podcast. Thank you so much for having me here. Now it's our first episode for 2021, so uh, hopefully I'm not too rusty behind the mic. It's been a been a quick minute. So I guess to get started, uh, it'd be great if you could give my listeners a little bit of intro to you and uh, what got you interested in finance. Yeah, no problem. So uh, obviously, my name is Nicholas, also known as the Aussie Money Man. So I'm 21 at the time of recording this. Uh, I started getting interested in finance to some extent pretty young at like 13, just the basic things, sort of working a job and all that. I started my first somewhat online business then, which is uh, just a YouTube channel. I worked with sponsors and, and that sort of stuff. And then at 17 is when I suppose I got really seriously into finance. So that's when you know I was doing everything from beginning to invest or researching it so I could as soon as I turned 18 uh, to understanding debt, uh, everything from credit cards, mortgages and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, I guess I always sort of had a bit of an interest in, in finance um, just because I, I guess I understood the gravity of how much it can impact your life. And yeah, sort of followed in that trend uh, since of just being quite on top of my um, finances. 17 pretty early to uh, start getting interested in finance. Did you have a lot of conversations about money growing up or what was what was the spark for that? Yeah, no, that's a fantastic question. And it's something I've thought about like quite a lot because I guess as it often is with these sorts of things, it's usually a number of factors or variables. So I wasn't told a lot about money when I was younger. Uh, I was mostly brought up just by my mum and she did teach us rough things, you know, like save money, always save money for a rainy day is the way she put it. And I heard that a lot. However, anything beyond that, not really. So she didn't invest, didn't understand investing or debt or that sort of stuff or good debt, bad debt. However, I think besides that, and I think that was probably a smaller part of it, the biggest part of it would have just been I had a lot of general ambition, right? So I was quite conscientious. I worked hard a lot and I thought, well, where am I going to put this hard work into? Because when you're quite young, you know, you're not really too sure. And this is more starting at like when I was 13 point. Um, And I just figured, well, money, right? Because once you have money, it's a tool and then you can use it for whatever the hell you want or whatever the hell you decide to do. So I think that was a big reason for it. I just figured if I can get myself set up early, I'm going to be able to decide later what I want to do with that. So I think think that was probably the big thing, just the general ambition and the realization of its uh, practical use. Mm. And what did your friends think about that in high school? Because uh, most people in high school are not thinking about money as a tool. They're just thinking about it as something they can use to buy food, go out with their friends, get the new iPhone. Yeah, no, that, that is a good point. It's funny because at the time I didn't notice it. I just sort of went along doing my thing. And, you know, since I've, since then, obviously, I've looked back and sort of been like, oh, wow, you know, that was supposed somewhat unique. And I don't think a lot of people really looked because they were too busy having fun, you know, enjoying their, their use. So I don't think they really looked over and noticed what I was doing. More so now, I mean, I have actually had this discussion with friends since. And really what we've sort of noticed is that most people don't start to take their finances seriously until they're 25, 30, some people all the way up until when they're 40. So I don't think we'll even really reach that point yet where people are really noticing that, you know, where they sort of see the significance of it. So really, I don't think a lot has come from it as far as, you know, my friends' perspectives and stuff. Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah, because it's, I mean, this is the first time I've ever interviewed anyone younger than me on the podcast. So it's really interesting to hear what sparked that on your journey. Because for me personally, it wasn't until about 18 and I was in my first full-time job and I did my first tax return and realized I hadn't saved a cent of what I'd earned uh, in that financial year. And that was kind of the, the spark for me to go, hey, I don't want to be like that every year for the rest of my life. I'd actually like to save some money. And that was probably where it started for me, even though my parents had always told me to save money. I hadn't really ever listened to them. So um, yeah, it's really interesting to hear about someone who kind of took it upon themselves at a young age to actually start doing that, even though the rest of their friends weren't doing that. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's um, it's certainly interesting. And I guess another point I should mention is my upbringing was interesting for lack of a better word and that I guess forces a level of maturity but then sort of forces you to look into that stuff a bit more for example you know if you want to move out relatively young rent's a thing you know so then you go holy crap you know $500 a week I remember when I first that's what it was and I heard that must have been 16 and I was sitting there going oh wow so yeah obviously things like that and circumstances well it was it was a big shock I, I actually I asked my teacher who was my mentor at school you had like a mentor and He's turned around and said, yeah, that's pretty normal. And I'm you're thinking, what the hell? And then that obviously forces you to take a real good look at, at your finances. Because that's something you never think about when, well, I didn't, um, in high school about how much everything costs. It's only now when you pay for groceries and you're realizing, oh, food actually costs a lot of money. Exactly. And then if you're eating out four times a week, you've got an extra grocery bill on top because you're paying 20 to $30 each meal. Yeah. Uber Eats is definitely a killer during lockdown for me. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a common thing. Yeah. Yeah. And so how did you, so at 13, 17, so when you got interested in learning about money and finance, assuming there weren't that many people you could talk about with your friends or family, how did you actually learn and get your foundations? Maybe what resources did you use? So mostly just reading online. I did try the book route a bit and, you know, I've read a fair few books. I've got a few here as well. Other than mostly around investing, but I think most of the knowledge I got was actually just reading people, other sort of bloggers, I suppose, because you know I'm a bit of a blogger, sort of influencer type thing, and just reading other people like that. Not just Australian specific, there really weren't, wasn't anyone doing that just in Australia at the time. But yeah, just reading stuff like that and just other people's stories was mostly like 25 to 30 year olds that had started getting into finance. And I do remember reading it and just learning a bunch from like Fire. That's where I first heard about Fire. And then just thinking, well, I can implement this now. And obviously, you know, you're going to be ahead. And at the time, I didn't even realize the compounding effect. I just figured I'd be five, 10 years ahead. But then you realize five, 10 years ahead, that early is like 30 years ahead because because of the compounding effect, you know, later on. So yeah, mo- mostly reading online, mostly articles. And now these days, obviously, YouTube's a great resource as well, because that's become a whole niche. And obviously, I'm a part of that. So yeah, I guess five years ago, I didn't even know about finance YouTube back then. I don't think there were really many podcasts at all. So I I guess a lot of the resources were just blogs. So, I mean, there's so much you can find online about people's finances and how they manage it through blogs. It gives you a really different perspective to what you'd read about in a book that has to be very vanilla and suit a really wide audience, isn't there? Yeah, that's actually a really good point. Yeah, that's probably one of the reasons why I found that I've connected a lot more with reading blogs because, yeah, they can be sort of niche and say, here's what I do, yeah, rather than um, books, absolutely. Mm, and that, I guess, did it, is that how you got sparked on like the financial independence movement by finding that out via blogs? Uh, interestingly enough, not really, because I actually thought I was some sort of genius and had uh, discovered the idea of fire myself before I actually found fire. Like I got really into it and learned 
all the details behind it, so to speak, from reading about it eventually. It was actually uh, Aussie Firebug, so Matt from Aussie Firebug's uh, blog that I found. And I remember reading that actually in my first job. I was doing a night shift and I found the blog and I was reading through it all night. But um, yeah, I I initially thought I sort of came up with it myself. I remember reading, I think it's the compound interest train or the magic train or something like that. And it's basically just telling you the idea of compound interest. And I remember reading it and thinking, oh, wow, you know, if I just save as much as I can, make as much as I can for X amount of years, I could retire real early. And yeah, so I basically thought I came up with it and realized there was millions of people doing it before me. Yeah, I think the first that I can really remember about the financial independence movement was probably Mr. Money Mustache's, like the sim- was it a shockingly simple mass of early retirement or something like that. And just that idea. And then I, I had spent a long time playing with the Money Smart Compound Interest Calculator, which is probably my favorite tool to actually show people about sort of financial concepts now because it makes it real about how much you can achieve over a 30-year time frame because most people are only thinking maybe a year ahead. Absolutely. I think that's a brilliant point the, that you bring up the Money Smarts Compound Interest Calculator because I think there was a point there where I was putting stats into that every two, three days for a good two years. I was just obsessed with it. And over that period, you know, I've had massive success because it's been so motivating to look at that constantly. And you're so right. It really just gives you that perspective. So I think that's an awesome point for everyone listening. Yeah. And do you still think you're obsessed with finances now? Because I, I found that for the first two years, it was just like every read and consume everything you can. And now for me, the financial independence has kind of taken a back seat as part of my like foundational goals. But I guess it's not something I think about every minute of every day now. Yeah, I'm so happy you asked that because yes, exactly. I've had exactly the same experience. It was everything, everything I did, every decision I made almost was around money. And now, yeah, it, it is, has taken a back seat. Obviously, I'm on top of my investments. I'm on top of maintaining income or increasing income and keeping that high savings rate. But yeah, it definitely has taken a back seat. And I think that's what it's meant to be. You know, you get it set up, you work on it, but then you can take the gas off a bit once you get to a certain point, you know. I think it's, um, I can't remember who, but there's this famous thing out there where once you get your first 100 grand, you know, that shows that you're capable of saving and all that. And then you can take, you know, your foot off the pedal a bit. And that's exactly what, you know, it sounds like we've both done. I mean, I've reached my first few hundred grand and I was like, wow, I was like, I don't actually have to do a crazy amount now into the future and everyone can do this you know you do the hard work then you take your foot off the pedal a bit and then just let it go because compound interest is going to take care of it the habits are set which is probably the most significant part now you say you've got it you've passed your first hundred grand already if we take a step back how did you earn and save your first one thousand dollars and where did you invest your first thousand dollars just as a little bit of a a question to go back to the beginning here i got my first job at 13 and i think it was four months eight dollars an hour at a fruit shop and that's how I got my first thousand dollars. So I worked, I think it was Wednesday and Thursday throughout the week for three hours after school. So Sunday we get nine hours and sometimes a few hours on Saturday. And I did that, you know, for I think a year or two. And then I got a job at Maccas on top. So that's basically where I got my first thousand dollars from. And I invested that, of course, once I was 18, because I wasn't aware that there was any way to do it before we were 18 at the time. And it was into peer to peer lending. So that's basically loaning your money to other people through a platform that acts as a bit of a bank with better rates for you and better rates for the borrower, basically. So mm, That's probably quite different to most people's first $1,000 investment. I, I imagine most people wouldn't start with peer-to-peer lending. No, no. That was um, because I'm quite analytical in my thinking and I was basically analyzing all the options. And at the time, given the economic uh, climate and my risk appetite and all that, there was better returns to be made there. And there was also bonus offers and stuff. And when you only have $1,000, a bonus offer of two, $300, you're like, wow, that's you know 30% of what I have. So 
yeah, it's obviously much better than, let's say, if you have ten, twenty thousand dollars for example. A few years ago, I guess, when peer-to-peer lending was really starting in Australia, they were definitely pushing really hard to get customers and interest rates were much higher then than they are now. So probably would have been a great time when you were 18 a few years ago to get started there. That's it. Yeah, it just worked at the time. Yeah. Mm. And how did you go on, maybe not specific what you invested in, but to grow that $1,000 investment into over your first $100,000? I suppose what I'd say is, look, the majority of you know the money I made, I did my first 100000 at 19, which is amazing. My goal was to do that by 21. So look, that was amazing. That was unexpected. So as you can tell, over such a short period, almost none of that was from interest returns. It was just from, you know, from working. Um, but now I've made a lot from interest, right? So um, I suppose as far as the way I, I, you know, I'm actually investing is I'm just index funds. So I'm not trying to pick companies or anything like that. I'm just investing really wide across index funds. And that's really the main way it's grown over the last year or two. Really, it's been over the last year or two that I've actually made significant amounts of interest or capital gains. Yeah, the market's uh, definitely gone in your favor the last few years. It has. Yeah, luckily. I, I did have a lot in there during the crash, but because I was still fortunately, you know, in this sort of thing has come down to luck. I was still making so much money at that time with during the crash and after that I was just able to keep piling in money as the market's gone up. So net, I'm um, net positive, luckily. Yeah. That's great. And I, I know a lot of older investors kind of, I guess, laugh at younger investors now because we haven't gone through maybe a 2008, 2009 situation. Even March of 2020 wasn't probably anywhere near that level. Have you thought much about the risk of investing, I guess, at such a young age. And I guess a lot of young people haven't really gone through that situation where they could really understand what it's like to live for a market crash. Have Have you thought much about that? A lot, yeah. So I've analysed that to every largest extent that I think you could. Um, and yeah, look, it is a huge thing because for young people, I mean, for anyone, it's incredibly difficult to find the information. It's incredibly difficult to understand the information if you find the right information more specifically. So yeah, that is a real risk. And I've analysed that incredibly well. And that's one of the main reasons why I don't invest in specific companies and things like that. Because basically the way that I invest allows me to invest in a manner such that even if the market crashed 80%, uh, 90% even, you know, anything beyond that, that's a whole nother kettle of fish. But I'm exp- <laughs> it's unlikely. Basically, if it does crash 80%, whatever it is, 60%, 30% again, as it did in March 2020, it wouldn't actually matter to me almost at all. So yeah, th- that is something I've thought about and prepared for. It's difficult. It is like that's something that I did not understand at all up until maybe mid 2020s when I really started to get into the crux of that and understand it. Because anyone that started investing over maybe the last sort of five to 10 years hasn't really experienced, like neither have I, I haven't experienced what it's like to go through that kind of 2008, 2009 situation. So I think I'll be okay, but uh, I guess it's always, yeah, you don't really know what will happen until that scenario happens. The thing is about it as well is if you do, you go to the extent to find the data to understand it and realize what works in those situations and what you should do. And it's not too difficult to understand, I don't think. Um, it's not too difficult to understand what you need to do, not so much why. But let's say you do that. The issue is, and you know, I'm sure a lot of people are aware of this to some extent, it's not even just knowing what to do and understanding what to do. It's having the emotional tenacity to do that. Because basically what studies show to do, and this is empirically known and it has been for the last 30 years, is that you just want to put your money into the market, into a lot of index fund and don't take this as financial advice it might not suit your specific situation of course it's a true point i mean there's people out there that wouldn't do this but more or less by and large you put your money into the, into the index fund and you just don't touch it no matter what unless if you need to touch that money in the next seven to ten years then you'd want to pull it out you wouldn't a lot of people for example invest for the next three four five years 
that actually doesn't really work when you're investing in the stock market. It's, it is quite risky. So the issue is, is that even if you know that, once the actual crash happens, and I think this is sort of what you're getting at, Kate, people become emotional. And even if they know they shouldn't pull out, they're going to. So, yeah, that is a, another risk on top. But, you know, I think it was Warren Buffett that said, if you are even slightly unsure that you'll be able to handle, you know, losing 80% of your money in the stock market, you shouldn't be in the stock market because you need to be able to handle that. I was down a stupid amount of money. I can't even remember how much exactly, but it might have been $70,000 at one point. And I was fine. I just kept buying it. Yeah. And I think maybe March last year was a tiny taste of it. It was quite interesting, I guess, just seeing it as a test of my own reactions to see, well, how do I feel just seeing my my money go down? And you still got up each day, you still got on with things. So yeah, I, I guess it's just going to be very interesting investing over the next 30 years and all the experiences that come along with it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it is a bit of an emotional experience um, as well as, I suppose, a just a general learning curve, yeah. Yeah, so over the last few years investing as you've sort of gone on your journey, what are some of the biggest mistakes you've made? Because it's always good to learn from other people's mistakes and your own, but if you can avoid making a mistake, it's it's always good to hear about them. <laughs> it's a bit hard. So I actually have created content about this over on my channel. And the reason it's a bit hard is because I did start so early and I've been so proactive around my finances, you know, I haven't had a lot of chances to make mistakes. I've sort of being on pretty on, on top of it, most of my mistakes that have affected my finances in any sort of way, in a negative negative way that is, have really actually been indirect. So it's more just been sort of trusting other people or that sort of stuff, uh, more so than spending too much money on buying food or anything like that. So there's not a lot I could say. If, if anything, maybe, and I'm not even too sure about this being a mistake, I, I could say I could have been a bit less frugal. But with that said, the reason I think I'm in such a great position now is because I did that. And I don't actually regret that. I don't think I missed out, so to speak. It's not like I wouldn't go out ever with my friends. I just only would go out where I actually really wanted to. You know, I don't go out at all due to peer pressure or due to the fact that I think I'll regret it later. It's just that sort of stuff. Yeah. So I probably can't offer a huge amount of value. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I guess one of the good things about starting early is even if you do make some mistakes like taking a uh, stock tip off a online forum, it doesn't make too much of an impact over your finances because hopefully you're only starting with a small amount of money, especially like if you're just starting with your first thousand dollars, you can't, the most you can lose is a thousand dollars. And so what is your, I imagine it's changed over the last few years. So what's your current investment approach? Like how do you how do you sort of view your investments and how do you manage them on a general basis? So I basically invest in what we call the evidence-based approach, which is basically just using uh, studies. And because of that, I invest in every investable stock around the world. So that's uh, emerging markets and developed markets, uh, value and growth, just market cap weighted. Uh, so that's basically just using things like Vanguard ETF funds. So one, for example, is DT. Uh, again, not financial advice to go and buy VT, but uh, that's literally every stock. Uh, so that's a US dollar salad one in that case, although you can do the same thing using the ASX. You just have to use two to three uh, ETFs instead. So that's how I invest. And as far as how often I'm putting money in and stuff like that, every time I get around $10,000 or more, I chuck it in there and I just don't think about it. I don't look at what the market does. And yeah, that's basically my approach. Mm, so instead of having a set day each month, you just have a threshold of if the money in this account hits this amount, it gets invested. That's right. And then basically the reason for that is considering things like fees, uh, just the time cost of me transferring it and having to buy and all that. And then more significantly, it's essentially just the opportunity cost thing. So after a certain amount, you basically what studies seem to suggest 
uh, is that you're putting the money in as soon as you get it. But of course, you then have to consider the fees on, on that as well. So it's basically balancing those factors. I mean, so many people when they're getting started are, are wondering like what day, what time, how many ETFs, which brokerage account, and so many of those questions delay you taking any action at all. So it's having a really simple approach that you can just sort of follow on a regular basis is much better than uh, analyzing every single tiny detail to the minutia. Absolutely. And, you know, there's a lot of other benefits in doing that beyond, you know, even just get, getting it done quicker. It's uh, it's also like having a plan that is, it's also things like you're a lot more likely to hold your ground and not emotionally sell or to do anything based on emotion if you've just got a set plan. So, yeah, I think that's a huge part of investing. Yeah. And it makes it so much easier once you've got a plan. You don't have to make a decision every month about what you're going to do. It's just sort of you can really start to automate that process and focus on all the other more interesting areas of life. Yeah, no, well said. It's less taxing on your energy. Yeah. Yeah. And so how do you think your relationship with money has changed over the last sort of five years as you've learned and grown and built your side hustle and your YouTube channel up and studied and worked and everything like that? I guess we covered this a, a bit earlier inadvertently. And that is basically that, yeah, I've become, you know, I'm still frugal, I'm still minimalist, but I'm less concentrated on money. I think about money a lot less. You know, I don't put my uh, finances into the compound money spots, compound interest calculator every two days. I really did that. I think that's like the biggest change. It's just been a matter of doing, putting the hard work in and then enjoying the fruits of your labor. And I think obviously everyone needs to assess that for themselves. So in my situation, I realized because I'm naturally conscientious and I'm naturally attracted to things that involve working and making money, that given my current situation, it's incredibly unlikely, you know, I'm ever going to have a money issue. So, you know, I can sort of just, yeah, take take my foot off the gas uh, a little bit, as I, as I keep mentioning. I really like that approach. And I, I guess the way I think about it is I always want to have enough money to be able to look after myself, whatever happens moving forwards. And by putting money aside and investing while I'm in my 20s, I can sort of make sure that I'm always going to be able to look after myself for decades to come. And it's good to be able to take your, your foot off the brake after putting in a few years of hard work, isn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, you sort of keep mentioning the sort of that long term outlook. And that's so important because the second biggest determining factor for success, financial success and otherwise is conscientiousness. And essentially what you could describe conscientiousness as largely is basically just that future outlook. So instead of going, hey, you know what I'm going to do for the next day or next week, next month, which is how a lot of people do think. And it's natural to think that way. You force yourself to say, hey, you know, let's take care of myself in a year. You know, and that's what I always do. You know, you just think, how, how is, you know, future Nick or future care, you know, going to feel in a year um, based on my decisions now? And you really do just concentrate on the, on the future for even if it's just a few years or a few months or whatever it is that you need to do, you'll thank yourself later, basically. Yeah. Now I'm going to spring this question on you, but what does future Nick think about superannuation? Overall, I think it's probably a good thing, right? So obviously the main reason it exists, uh, superannuation exists, is because, you know, most people aren't going to put money away from retirement because of that reason that we just discussed. People aren't thinking about themselves when they're 60, a lot of people can't even comprehend the idea that they're going to get on. Okay. So it's good for that reason. It's also good mainly, and this is the reason that we'll obviously hear the most, is that it's tax advantageous for most people. So obviously 15% is much better than most people's marginal tax rate, which is usually 30, 40, 50%, even depending on how much you're earning. The big consideration is a lot of the people that are talking about superannuation and are on top of it are also people looking at fire. So they want to retire early. Obviously, that's a conflict of interest because you're probably going to not going to be able to access, depending on your preservation age, access your super until you're like 60. So I think in most people's situations, if they want to fire, retire somewhat early, and they want to obviously get the tax savings, which makes sense, it's sort of a balancing act. So I've put a lot of money into my super over time to reduce tax. 
but I've also got so much money outside of it that I will have enough to retire, you know, roughly when I don't really have an idea in my head because I, I want to do lots of work, but let's say I want to retire at 30 earliest or whatever it is, I'll be able to do that despite having X amount of dollars in, in my super. So I think it's probably a good, it's definitely a good thing for most people. I think it's a good system. I think the tax savings are very advantageous and you can take advantage of that. But obviously it just needs to be weighed up with other considerations such as fire or just having like an emergency fund that you can access because it's, you know, once your money's in your super, unless if there's another pandemic, you're probably not going to be able to get anything out of it. Yeah, I was, I was absolutely amazed last year that they were letting people take money out of the super. I didn't see that coming at all. So I was very surprised by that regime. Me too, actually. I, I thought that was crazy. Yeah. Now, if anyone's listening is a very ambitious year 12 student or they're a uni student right now, someone in their early 20s, and they really want to get started with their finances early, what would be some of the, the biggest tips that you would want to give them? I suppose the biggest tip, and this is really for anyone, would be don't feel like you need to do everything. Because as, as we sort of discussed before, Kate, when we mentioned like investing and people want to know which broker's got the best fees and which is the best stock and when's the best right time to buy, is that you know people get overwhelmed with all the details and they end up doing nothing. And this applies to all areas of life. And I think it's important to re- just remember in life that doing something's almost always better than nothing. So even if you do 10% of you know whatever it is, it's probably better than doing 0%. So yeah, I think it's it's important to not get overwhelmed by by the small details. Obviously, if you're someone who's super super industrious, super super organized, you know you're going to look at all those details and get through it all. That's fine. But if you if you know realistically, you know just work with what your what your what you know is likely to happen for you, and you know you're someone who's going to get overwhelmed. Don't worry about that stuff too much because it's probably more important that you invest at all than you know you get the cheapest broker that's going to charge you know twenty dollars less every time you invest that sort of thing. So that's probably the the biggest tip. And I think that's a good tip because it applies to sort of everyone because people are different and not everyone's going to spend 90% of their day looking at their finances. It's just not realistic. So Yeah, I I think it's just do something rather than just sort of think it's all too overwhelming and do nothing and don't let the confusion stop you from actually getting started. Yeah, it's just like classic start now, like just do it, just do something, kickstart it. Once you've got the ball rolling, it's probably 70 80% 80% easier than before you started it. Yeah. And even like when, if you make your first $50, $100 investment, it gets a little bit less scary every time and you learn along the way. And even if you make a mistake, you can learn from it, pick yourself up and keep going. Absolutely. Yeah. Then you've got some experience then. Yeah. Well said. So before we wrap up, are there any other resources you'd love to shout out um, that have been really helpful for you that you think other people would benefit from? Obviously, you know, my YouTube channel is what I use to share you know, my research, uh, everything I found that's good and, and useful and stuff like that. So obviously you can check out my channel, which is Aussie Money Man on my website. That's got most things. One of my favorite YouTubers uh, online is Ben Felix. So that's B-E-N-F-E-L-I-X. Basically what I guess you could call another evidence-based investor. So he basically just delivers information on studies. And that's a lot of what my content is based on. So that's another good person to look at. Uh, he's actually based in Canada. So all his content is uh, Canadian uh, specific. However, you know, the general rules still sort of apply. But again, that's where my content would sort of um, help. Yeah, awesome. Because I don't watch too much sort of financial YouTube. So uh, definitely, if you're interested in watching finance stuff, but via video, um, Nick's channel would be great to have a look at. And I'll put that in the show notes as well. Yeah. So thank you so much for coming on the show today and uh, sharing some of your experiences and your lessons you've learned about managing your money so far. It was great to have you. Thanks for having me on. I enjoyed our chat. Wonderful. Well, thanks for coming on again. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the How To Money podcast. If you enjoyed this, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and send any questions our way via www.howtomoney.online. You can also catch us on Twitter and Instagram at howtomoneyaus, and we'd love to hear from you. You've been listening to the How To Money podcast.